Let us pray. Father, as we come right now to your holy word to once again look at this very difficult passage in the book of Ezra, Father, we believe that this is your inspired word. Help us to see the beauty of your word, that our hearts may again be alighted with delight because we have dwelt and have been nurtured and have drunk deeply from your well of truth. So God, I pray that you will allow us again to experience as we hear your words does its work in our lives that we may feel and that we may understand and that it may be transformed into action to love you more. So Father, be with us right now as we look at Ezra chapter 2. In Jesus' name, Amen. When I was doing my doctoral degree, I was also teaching at Florida State University as a teaching assistant. During the summer, many of the tenured professors were away, and we, the lowly teaching assistants, had to teach the bulk of the summer classes. I remember I had to teach three back-to-back -back summer sessions, or six weeks intensives. At the end of each session, it means that I have to grade over 60 exams, 60 term papers, tabulate the results all within the time frame or within, the, the, uh, within a few days so before the next session starts. I remember during those times when you have to grade so many papers and then I had my dissertation work on the side. It was difficult. I had to stay in my apartment almost uh, the entire day and night just grading papers over the weekend. At the time, I was staying in a one-bedroom apartment. I had student papers all over my lounge chairs. I had books all over the floor. I had uh, dishes all stacked up in the sink. My whole apartment was just a mess. It was like a whirlwind that swept right through and everything was just falling out of its place. But despite my busyness, I still had time to attend church. I attended a church nearby because of the amount of work I had to do. I didn't want to go to my usual church, so for the least few weeks, I just visited a church nearby. This church I've never been to. And so like most new churches, they gave me a card to fill in. I did fill in, give them the details. After church, I rushed home so that I can continue my grading. And I was driving back home into my own parking lot where my apartment block was. I saw deacons, the deacons of the church I just visited. They were already standing outside the door of my apartment because they got my details. They wanted to come to visit me and to thank me for visiting their church. But there was just no way I would allow them to enter my apartment. My apartment was just a big mess. Furthermore, there were no clean cups anywhere to be found to serve them a drink. And there was no vacant seat in the apartment. Everywhere there were books and student papers. Every chair had papers on top of it. So when I saw the deacons all waiting outside the door of my apartment and I was there in the parking lot, I quickly drove away from the walking lot and quickly drove away. Why? We don't like people to see us in our messes. 
We do not want people to see that our apartment is in a whirlwind of mess where you have cups all stacked everywhere. We want our CVs to be positively clean and spotless. We want our interviewers to see our strengths and our potential uh, potential and not our weaknesses. We want our Instagram pictures to show us to show that we're on top of things. We want happy photos to be on Facebook. We want people to see our best and not our messes. Ezra chapter 2 verses 1 to 70 is a very messy list. It's filled with messy men, men acquainted with failures, men who have been defined by weaknesses, men who just don't know what they were doing. And, but before we delve into the look at Ezra chapter 2, it is important to situate Ezra chapter 2 within the context of the book of Ezra. Ezra begins with uh, most of God's people in exile. And the book starts off with how God, by His Spirit, started to stir in the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to allow His people to return back to Jerusalem. So chapter 2 describes their return. Ezra could have described the return in different ways. He could have described the events that happened that led to their return, the journey that the people went through, what they saw, how the return was. Ezra could have described the leaders who brought them back. Ezra could have talked about Sheshbazah, the prince of Judah, a descendant of King David, and how he brought the entourage of God's people home. They could have talked about the adventures, the events that they met on the way home. But no, Ezra chooses to talk about the type of people that return. Ezra begins chapter 2 by describing the losers that came home. Not events, not uh, who brought them home, not the leaders, but the losers, the ordinary folks that came home to Jerusalem. They were the Jews uh, from Judah and Benjamin. And they were marked with failures, weaknesses, and shame. And Ezra isn't afraid to talk about this. And he spends 70 verses, 70 verses to talk about uh, these uh, men that have returned. Ezra chapter 2, verses 2 to 70 is a long, and I can emphasize this, a long list of names. But we can divide them into two sections, the, the people that returned. Verses 3 to 35 describe the laymen that return, while verses 36 to 70 describes the priests, the clergy, the clergy that return, namely the, the priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, the temple musicians, and the servants of Solomon that return. So Ezra spent his time describing this bunch of people that return. And unfortunately, all the names here mentioned are men. So I'm going to use the word men because there are men. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we come across 367 personal names. It's a very per These two books are very personal books, mentions people by names. But all of them are men. In Ezra and Nehemiah, there is only one woman mentioned. Do you know who that woman is? 
who that soul woman is in the sea of men? Her name is Noadiah. And she's not a really good lady. She's in fact one of the evil ones that tried to intimidate uh, Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 14. But this whole list uh, is a list of men's names. So let's look at this passage of scripture by looking at firstly the layman that returned and then we'll look at the priest. If you look at verses 3 to 20, you'll find that the laymen that returned were of no, well, were descendants of, of no important people. They were not descendants of King David or some great warrior or some great godly prophet. Even if they are, they're not linked here. They were just a motley crew of nobodies. In fact, their names are quite underwhelming. Parosh in verse 3 simply means fly. Zatu simply means bloss, uh, a bosom. Adin in verse 15 simply means tender. They're not that strong, valiant soldiers or heroes coming back to rebuild Jerusalem, but rather they are bosom, tender, or returning to rebuild Jerusalem. Hardly um, the type of people you would expect to return. But what's missing from this list of laymen is the name David. When the chronicler in 1 Chronicles introduces us to the sons of Israel, he lists Judah first, although Judah was not the firstborn, then he invokes an entire chapter in chapter 3 in 1 Chronicles on David and his sons. In fact, David is the key character in the book of Chronicles. Why? Because David and his sons were the leaders of Israel, but not here in, in Ezra. While David is mentioned 229 times in 1 and 2 Chronicles, he is only mentioned 3 times in the book of Ezra. And 7 out of these 18 names that are mentioned here are repeated in Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10 is a very sad chapter because it least lists down the, the men who have betrayed God but marrying foreign women. Not that there's anything wrong in marrying foreign women, but these foreign women are like what they did to King Solomon, leading God's people astray. So these men that are mentioned here in chapter 3 are going to be repeated again later on in the book, and they are going to sin, they are going to fall, they are going to become a mess. And if you looked at the verses 21 to 35, the bulk of the list of these men come from Judah and Benjamin. There were no one that returned from the other ten tribes of Israel. What happened to the rest of Israel? Israel is made up of twelve tribes, but only men from two tribes returned. What happened to the less of the ten tribes? And although there were there, if you do the math, there are twelve thousand two hundred eighty-five laymen that returned. From exile, in the time of King David, there were already 1.1 million warriors from the northern tribes and 470,000 warriors from Judah. 12,285 pales in comparison. What can we say about this list of laymen who returned? They were a bunch of motley crew. They were once that came home, they were quite of a mess, and they will make a mess of God's plans later on in the book of Ezra. 
and you want to save God, really God? You want to use this hot mess of men to rebuild your house? God, is this the best you can do when you moved people to return to build your house? This mess of a people? But we need to remember that God is famous for creating nothing out of, of creating something, creating the cosmos out of nothing. Of course, a small motley crew of failures can be used by Him. God doesn't need glossy CVs. He doesn't need people with extremely high degrees of education. He doesn't need people with impeccable past and achievements. But God can use people who failed. God can use a small bunch of people. God can use people who will fail in the future to accomplish His work. He often uses the why, the weak, the despised, and the small to accomplish His purposes. God's not ashamed of our messes. An Indian story was once told about a house servant who had two pots. And he would hang one pot on one end of a pole and another pot at the other end of the pole. And he would carry this pole with the two pots every morning to the stream behind the master's house to fill them up with water. One pot was in perfect condition, one pot was slightly cracked. And he would take these two pots via the pole every morning to the stream to bring up water. For two years, the servant did that every day, bring back the two pots. The perfect pot was happy and proud of its accomplishments. But the poor cracked pot was ashamed of its imperfection. It was miserable over the fact that every time he brought back water, only half the pot was filled with water because the rest of the water was spilled out of the crack. And after two years of uh, what he saw was a bitter failure, the crackpot finally spoke to the servant. The crackpot said to the servant, I'm ashamed of myself and I want to apologize. What are you ashamed of? The servant said. No, for these past two years, I've been delivering only half the amount of water I'm supposed to. The rest of the water just leaked out and spilled over through my cracks. Because my flaws, I can only provide half the work that I'm supposed to accomplish. But the servant says, don't say that. Every time when we return back to the master's house, I want you to notice the beautiful flowers along the path. As we went uphill, the, your water overflowed and, 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 and slipped out the cracks and the water just simply watered the flowers. And after these two years, take a look at the path we tread each morning and you will see the beautiful flowers there. Each of us may have been cracked. We may be cracked by sin, by failures, by things that we have done wrong. But God is not ashamed to still use us to water the plants that we don't see. I like it when Christian rapper Lacrae once says this to say, he says, Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I make hypocritical 
decisions. Yes, I fall. Yes, I stumble. I struggle. I'm a mess. But I am God's mess. And He can turn a mess into a masterpiece. Secondly, let's look at the clergy. So the two groups that return, the laymen and then the clergy. Let's turn to the clergy. The clergy is divided into the priest, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. What is really shocking, if you look at this list very carefully, is at verse 14. There are only 74 Levites that returned. During David's time, the Levites were so huge that they filled up the temple and overcrowded the temple and its precincts and even more. But here, only 74 returned. In David's time, the musicians came from four big families and each had a different role. Each family had a different role in worship. Some were to oversee the ministry of prophecy. Others were to oversee the various instruments. But here the musicians have strung. If you look at verse 41, the musicians, the descendants of Asa, how many were there? Only 128. No mention of prophecy, no mention of their musical instruments. Then in verses 43 to 54, we read about the temple servants. The Hebrew word for servant here, or servants here, is Neputin. Judging from their foreign names, most likely they were foreigners uh, that David brought back from his war efforts. So they were foreign uh, slave captives uh, bulking up the numbers. So they were, the, the clergy group was not made up of really distinctive priests and uh, distinctive Levites to provide good music and good worship. No, they were made up of slaves that were not really part of the clergy, but somehow part of the clergy. They were foreign workers to add it in to build up or to bulk up the numbers. And things get even worse. If you look at verse 61 and 62, the priests, some of the priests did not even know whether they were truly priests. <laughs> they were confused. Why? Because they were not sure of their ancestry, whether they were connected to the priestly family. Then in verse, um, uh, then we read of the priests again. Some of the priests uh, did not even have the Urim and the Tumim. The Urim and the Tumim were the most basic apparatus that the priests had. But the Urim and Tumim at this time were already missing. It's just like uh, you have a computer analyst and the computer analyst doesn't have own a computer because his computer is missing or a doctor who doesn't have a stethoscope or a pastor who has lost his Bible. What good is a priest when he's lost his apparatus? And what is also missing from the list? If you compare the list here with First Chronicles, is there any mention of the army? When the chronicle was mentioning the glory of Israel under David, he ended his list with the glorious army of David. In fact, the chronicle spends an entire chapter, chapter 27, talking about David's mighty army. 
and the, the, the strength of an army is the pride of the nation. You cannot have a great nation without a great army. Why? Because you will tumble and quickly fail very quickly, easily. When the enemies come, regardless of how much wealth you have, regardless of how, how many priests you have, you will crumble because nobody's there to protect you. And God's people here returning back to Jerusalem had no army. This is going to be a problem for Ezra later in the book of Ezra. They don't have a substantial army. And the return from Babylon to Jerusalem is a long one. It's over 900 miles or 1,448 kilometers. It's a four-month journey because Ezra is going to make that return later on and took him about four months. And on the way, this return back is going to be very, very dangerous. Ezra is going to talk about the danger of this pilgrimage back. And regardless of how many priests you have, uh, how much how many people you have, if you don't have an army to protect you, you're a goner. So this list is a mess. This list is just a bunch of people bound for failure. But yet God protected them. When the people worshipped, when the people gave up their lives like the priests and the Levites, small they were, and the, the temple workers, though they were not really a priestly heritage, though they gave themselves to worship, God protects His people. God protects you and me. When we place our lives, our imperfect, messy lives in His hands, He is our protector. He is our army that fights for us, that, that secures ministries for us, that leads us when there is no one to lead us. To protect us from the dangerous pilgrimage in front of us. But all God wants us to do is to be faithful. In the movie, The Monuments Mend, tells a story about Claire Simond, who lives a very ordinary life in Paris during the oppressive Nazi regime. The Nazi have stolen a lot of artwork during this time when they were in power. And uh, uh, Claire Simone was somebody who was to curate this, these uh, works of art that the Nazis have stolen. She wasn't even sure what the Nazis would do with these precious pieces of artwork that she had to take care of. And uh, the Nazis could easily throw them away, sell them, uh, discard them, keep them in the... In the, uh, somewhere, she doesn't even know what would happen to these precious pieces of art, but yet she was told to curate them. And so she spends the time with uh, 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 color, putting color stickers on them to know where each work, each work belongs and what each work, uh, how to categorize each piece of artwork. She kept a lot of time curating these pieces of artwork for a long time. Until somebody by the name of James Granger shows up. And he was the, one of the allies who showed interest about these pieces of art and was willing to save and return 
these pieces of art. But up to this point, the majority of Claire's time was spent in record keeping and she had no idea who would show up, who will salvage this art, what these artworks will lead to, who will end up with these artworks. She did not know. All she knew was to be faithful. In a similar way, we as Christians lived in enemy occupied territory. Yes, danger is everywhere. We do not know how God will save us, but we are sure that He will because of Jesus and His death on the cross and His resurrection, that He will come back to save us, to protect us, to guide us. And we may not know His plans, and though weak we are, just like this motley crew of laymen and priests in the book of Astra, but God still protects us, He leads us, He guides us. All we need to do is to be faithful to Him. Father, we come before You this morning with our hearts open. Father, we do not know the next step in what You want us to do. But Father, we know that even people who have failed Miserable pilgrims who have lost their way, who are only half-hearted, who only have very limited sources and supplies, who do not have the connections and the clouds. Father, we still can come to you. And Father, we come to you this morning with our hearts surrendered, our souls laid bare at your altar, the altar of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross and the resurrection that secured our victory, that we're no longer just messes, but you are bringing us to perfection working in our lives through your spirit that you have given to us through faith and belief in you. So Father, as we come before you, I pray for each one listening to this message at this time, whether here in this auditorium or whether online. Father, you will do your work in us. Protect us, lead us, guide us. Our job is not to plan the journey. Our job is to just trust you and to do, to be faithful with the gifts that you have given to us. We thank you that you have used a motley crew like this crew here in the book of Ezra. Imperfect they are for your glory. Father, Holy Spirit, Use us again. Lead us again. Protect us. In Jesus' name.